Good morning, church. Our reading today is Luke 1, verses 1 to 25. Um, I'll be reading from the NIV. I'll give you a moment to get there with me. Before I begin reading, let me remind you that this is the word of God. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have clearly investigated, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I want to speak to you about the word credulity. Um, he has a definition from uh, Merriam-Webster of what credulity means on the screen. A readiness or a willingness to believe especially on slight or uncertain evidence. Synonyms for credulity are gullible, uh, naive, and maybe simple. For many in our world today, credulity is a good synonym for the, for the word faith. Gullibility 
um, a willingness to believe anything without any evidence. For many, Christian faith falls into the, the category of credulity. Um, when something else, maybe, when something doesn't really make sense or has no real or rational basis, then you exercise faith. And many have that view of Christian faith. The opposite of credulity is skepticism. And uh, don't we live in a very skeptical world? There is no self-respecting dweller of the Western world who wouldn't consider themselves a skeptic in one area or more. Ours is a culture that prides itself in skepticism. He has a quote from Bertrand Russell, the English philosopher. He says, dogmatism and skepticism are both, in a sense, absolute philosophies. One is certain of knowing, the other of not knowing. Now, skepticism is surely a good thing. We have whole NGOs in this country that are dedicated to being skeptical about everything the government says. Uh, organizations like Corruption Watch or Outer, and we are thankful for those organizations, aren't we? Um, they expose fraud and untruth almost on a daily basis. They are committed to questioning, to exposing, and to doubting, and we should applaud the whistleblower watchdogs and their skepticism. But skepticism has limits. If you can't be certain about anything, uh, if you believe that real knowledge is impossible, then you will doubt everything and you'll never make a decision. Um, if you push skepticism to its logical end, you'll never get married, you'll never invest, you'll never buy a house, and you definitely won't buy a second-hand car. But what Luke does for us in this reading that Vicky read for us this morning is he gives us grounds for certainty. Not credulity, but for certainty. And so as we begin our Christmas mini-series, I'm calling it An Uncommon King. And uh, this morning we start with the first 25 verses of Luke's Gospel. And over the next few weeks, we're going to make our way through the first two chapters of Luke until we uh, hit Christmas Day. Luke has got very important things to say to us about certainty. Uh, he is aware that he's got a lot to prove. He's got a lot of work to do to persuade us about Jesus. And he wants us to move from skepticism not to credulity, but to certainty. You can see this in verse 4. Um, verse 4, he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That's why he's written. Uh, he wants us to be certain. So in verse 1, he talks about other accounts. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us. Accounts. There are other sources that he's using. He's not, the, he's not claiming to be the, the only source of information about Jesus. Um, these other sources were written down as he writes. He's, he's done his reading. He's done his literature review. And he is looking at other sources. There is evidence that he had access to Mark's gospel, um, the first gospel to be written. And there is also evidence that both he and Mark had access to another source that we don't have today. It's been lost to us. And so there are accounts. Secondly... There are traditions. Look at verse 2. 
uh, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's, he's also look, not only looking at written accounts, he's looking at traditions that have been handed down orally to him by eyewitnesses. Um, things handed to him from the first generation of Christians, namely the apostles. Luke was not one of the apostles. He was a second generation Christian. These are the word-of-mouth stories from eyewitnesses. Um, at our previous church, there was a man who was in his 90s who was very much in sound mind. And I went and had tea with him one day on a couple of occasions, but the first time I went, he told me his story, how at the age of 19, he was flying airplanes off aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean during the Second World War. And he could recount with great detail what his life was like on the ship and at that time in the war, lucid with clear memories of what he had experienced some 70 years or longer before. And so there are hints in these stories that show that Luke had access, for example, to Mary. It's, it's possible that he went and interviewed her. Perhaps she was an old lady by the time he got to her. But that doesn't mean that she couldn't remember what happened or that what she said happened didn't happen. There's no reason to be skeptical about that, for there are details contained in Luke's gospel that only she would have known that he chose to include. Accounts, traditions, investigation, verse 3. Look at what he says. Um, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so Luke himself has followed and investigated everything from the beginning. He's not trying to improve or embellish on the story. He doesn't exaggerate the story. He's a faithful scribe and historian, uh, commensurate with other historians in his time and age. And notice that his goal is to write an orderly account. For history is not only made by investigation, it also needs to be written down. Of course, it doesn't mean that it's an exhaustive account. No history, no written history, ancient or modern, can be exhaustive. It necessarily has to be selective. History is writing selectively in order that it might convey actual events truthfully. And so he himself has investigated. And then fourthly, certainty. We come to the word certainty in verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He claims that the story he's about to tell is solid truth based on evidence. Evidence that he has been researching, reading, gathering eyewitness accounts for, an endeavor that he had been busy with from about A.D. 49 when he met Paul at Troas. Luke is a trustworthy source. He's a trustworthy historian. Obviously, there are differences between ancient historians and modern historiographers, but for his day and at his time, he is writing serious and well-researched history, and we can trust it and we can take him at face value. He's written truth. But it's not just truth. It is actually divine truth. 
that he has written. So it's, it's not less than history, but it is more than history. And you can pick that up with my fifth word under this first heading, which is fulfillment, which come, is in verse 1. Let's look again at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Um, Luke has a particular view of history. It starts somewhere and it goes. Not everybody has that view of history in our world today. Not every culture has a linear view of history. Luke's basis for what to include in his history is that God had a plan that has now come to fruition. In the fullness of time, God's plan has been fulfilled. And so Luke's basis for what to include, what to select for his book, is that God had a plan. Let me show you how that plan has been fulfilled. It's a plan that was told to the prophets of Israel centuries before Jesus was born. He had said certain things were going to happen, and they happened. And we have seen them, says Luke, and I want to tell you about them because of fulfillment. These prophecies have been fulfilled in our presence. Let me tell you about them. And so did you notice in verse 2, it's such an interesting little detail, quite easy to skip over, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. Notice the eyewitnesses become servants of the word. Isn't that interesting? They don't just remain objective unemotional eyewitnesses. What they saw fulfilled had an effect on them. It changed them as they became servants of the word. It's a lovely phrase that it's quite an unusual way to describe the disciples who were the first generation and who were the, the original eyewitnesses. I think I would have written who were servants of the Lord. That wouldn't have been a bad thing to write, but it's not what he writes. He says servants of the word. And he does it deliberately because he's making the point that following Jesus, becoming convinced of Jesus, is intricately woven in with the word of Jesus and with the word about Jesus, that is, the gospel. There is a basis for the things that we have been taught, a carefully researched basis. What we believe has as its foundation historical truth but it's not just that. It's divine truth, and it'll change you if you come to believe it. Can you see how different uh, Christianity is to, for example, Mormonism? What are the, where do the Mormons get their certainty from? They believe that a guy called Joseph Smith was one day sitting under a tree, minding his own business, and the angel Moroni arrived and gave him two golden tablets with the Book of Mormon written on it in a language that he didn't understand. And so the angel produced a pair of golden spectacles, which when he put them on, he could suddenly understand the tablets. And he transcribed the Book of Mormon, which they believe supersedes the Bible. But then the angel Moroni took the spectacles and the tablets and disappeared back to heaven before anybody else could check that what Joseph Smith said happened, happened. Now, is that going to produce certainty, do you think? 
I think um, Corruption Watch would be onto them very quickly, wouldn't they? But that's not what we are dealing with when it comes to what we know to be true. And so you are right to be skeptical about Mormonism. But when it comes to what Christians teach and what the Bible teaches and what the gospel writers wrote, can I say that credulity is not a Christian virtue and nor is it a good definition of Christian faith? So if you are a skeptic, um, welcome, lovely to have you, glad that you're here. Luke is open about his agenda. He's not trying to pull the wool. He's not trying to tell you something that is fantastical. We have to suspend all reason in order to believe it. He's open. And it is believable because there is researched and orderly presented evidence. One Christian preacher put it like this. He said, genuine Christianity is neither credulous nor skeptical. It is credible, believable, supernaturalism. It's a very, very good definition of what Luke is writing. Credible, believable, not less than history, but it is more than history. There is a supernatural and a divine element to it. So then we move to the second uh, part of this morning, the second um, heading this morning, which is the beginning of fulfillment, which is verses 5 to 25, um, all about John the Baptist. But first of all, who are we introduced to in verse 5? In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. Who was Herod? Um, Herod was the uh, puppet Jewish king under the authority of the Romans um, who had a kind of a rule and a jurisdiction over Judea, though he still answered to overlords, the Romans. He called himself Herod the Great, but he was not great. He was a violent tyrant. He was detested by his subjects. He was cruel, he was malicious, he was spiteful, and I love this word, he was lecherous, which means no woman was safe around him. He was a dreadful man. It was this Herod who decreed the murder of all Jewish boys under the age of two that Matthew records for us in an attempt to kill the real king of the Jews, Jesus. The time of Herod was a time of darkness. And so when we read in the days of Herod, Luke is saying to us, in the darkest and most evil days that men can remember. But God was about to turn on the lights. He was sending someone who himself was not the light, but a signpost to the light, which is a good reminder to us this morning that no matter how dark it might feel, God is always at work in history and God is always at work in the darkness. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people, four centuries of silence and darkness between the Old Testament and the New. But God is at work in the darkness. 
and in the silence even. By way of contrast to Herod, we are introduced to Zechariah, the priest. Verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. We move from the palace, Herod, to the temple, Zechariah, who is a priest and married to the daughter of a priest, for Elizabeth was in the line of Aaron, the great house of priests. And what a contrast Zechariah is with Herod. Together with his wife, he served and obeyed God. And although not perfect, we are told that as a couple they were blameless. What a happy home they must have had. How wonderful to have gone around for supper at their place. But we're told that they were not without their own burden. Just like the nation of Israel had the shadow over it, they had a personal shadow, a personal sadness over their lives. Verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. And so we are told they were old, probably 60. They, they didn't know in those days that, that 60 was the new 40. Uh, they didn't have vitality and discovery health in those days. And in verse 8 and 9, he's going about his business and his duties. He, would have, he was one of, estimates are, 18,000 priests um, serving in the temple. And in verse 9, he's chosen by Lot um, to light the incense, a great privilege and probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so he must have felt, this is a good day. I drew the lot. I'm going to light the incense. It was sort of the pinnacle of the priestly duties. And then his day gets ruined because Gabriel turns up. And so Gabriel, verse 11, we meet Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Luke has got these lovely moments throughout both of his volumes, because remember he wrote the book of Acts as well, where heaven and earth kind of touch like that, when there are angels or some kind of event. Remember the transfiguration of Jesus, um, where he's transfigured at the top of a mountain. And so the, these little episodes where heaven and earth touch, and here's the very first one, Gabriel coming from the throne room of heaven appears in the temple. And Zechariah responds how everyone responds when they see an angel in verse 12, gripped with fear, terrified. And in verse 13, look at what Gabriel says. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, what prayer do you think he's talking about? Probably it wasn't a prayer for a child, for that time is over for them. I would suggest to you that he's been praying for light to come into the darkness. God has heard you, says Gabriel, and he will answer you beyond your imagination. For a major role has been reserved in God's plan for salvation through Zechariah's own offspring, John the Baptist. And so my next subheading is John the Baptist. Look at what is said about him in verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you. 
and many will rejoice because of his birth. Um, Zena, a joy and a delight to you, Vim, obviously. Um, but um, many will rejoice because of her birth. Yes, many have rejoiced, of course. But not on the scale of John the Baptist, right? Because here we are still rejoicing and me- remembering this great birth, a unique birth in many ways. He will be great, we are told in verse 15, before the Lord. Uh, he won't be like Herod, the self-proclaimed the great. That's not real greatness, is it? You're not really great if you have to go around telling everybody how great you are. But verse 15 says, John the Baptist will be great uh, before the Lord, for that is what real greatness is. The Lord's opinion is what matters. Look at this cross-reference, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, where Jesus says this about uh, John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so Jesus thought he was great as well. And in verse 15, the angel tells Zechariah that he is to be especially dedicated to the Lord. He is never to be full of wine. He is to be full of the Holy Spirit. And so he's dedicated to the Lord's service. And in verse 16 and 17, we get a description of his ministry. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power to Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for an even greater event for the Lord. And so he'll bring many back to the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers and the children towards each other. Here is hope. Here is something new. Here is light in the darkness. God has broken his silence. His ministry will be in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was the first great reforming prophet in the Old Testament. His story is recorded for us from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, Elijah was the prophet who went on almost on pain of death to go and preach to the weak King Ahab and the wicked Queen Jezebel. John the Baptist preached to the weak King Herod and the wicked Queen Herodias and lost his head for his troubles. And so his ministry will reflect the ministry of Elijah. The Old Testament, 400 years before this, ended with a promise that an Elijah-like figure would return and he would be a harbinger of the Savior who was coming. He would be a sign that the Savior was coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And along the way, he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Look at these verses from Malachi chapter 4, the very last two verses of the Old Testament. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so that is the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, it's a very different ministry to Jesus. 
look at what Luke tells us about the about records the words of Jesus describing his own ministry in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, "Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division." And I encourage you to come back tonight to the carol service where I'm going to say more about that, about Jesus' ministry. But John the Baptist's ministry is not to bring division. It's to bring unity in families. And so for this aging, childless couple, the drama of God's redemptive plan begins to unfold. Shame. This proves too much for godly, faithful Zechariah. And what does he do? He doesn't believe the word of the angel. Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? The skeptic? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, listen, Zechariah, old boy, I'm not just a run-of-the-mill angel, you know. I am Gabriel. I'm not a common and garden angel. I stand in the presence of God. I speak for God. If you don't believe me, it's not me that you are not believing. It's God that you are not believing. Verse 19 The angel said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, this gospel. And now you will get a sign. That's what Zechariah wants. How can I know that this is true? I need a sign. Okay, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is going to be judgment on you. You're going to be silent. You will not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true, will be fulfilled at their appointed time. You'll get a sign, the sign of judgment, the sign that God's words are true and trustworthy. That sign will be your inability to speak any words. And so, friends, the Christmas story begins. Of course, it ends well. And Zechariah is restored, and the baby is born, and his speech returns. And by then, he's got used to the idea that this baby is not going to be called Zechariah the second. It's going to be called John the Baptist. So let me conclude. Let me come back to our two words, credulity. Credulity, as I've said, is not a Christian virtue. Friends, our faith is not wishful thinking like I hope I pass my exams, or I hope I win the lottery. Our acceptance of the Bible's Christmas story is really in a very different category to a child's acceptance that Father Christmas brings gifts on Christmas Eve. It's not not apples with apples. What we believe is based on well-researched, serious eyewitness testimony and interviews. We have nothing to be embarrassed about. We don't have to be credulous in order to accept that the Christmas story, as recorded for us in the Bible, is true. God has broken into the darkness. He has answered evil. He has provided a plan to crush the devil and sin. Joy to the world. 
hope to the hopeless. I don't know what burden you're carrying this morning. You might feel like your world is very dark. I'm very glad to tell you with absolute certainty that God has acted in history to make a difference in your life. You don't need to be credulous, but let's talk about skepticism. You can't forever sit on the fence if you are a skeptic. There is enough evidence here for you to accept Luke's account. Why don't you read it for yourself? Make your own decision about it. Or I'd love to talk to you about it. But may I respectfully warn you that if you keep rejecting it, if you keep demanding a sign, I'll believe it if I see it. I'll believe it if a miracle is done in front of me. That actually you will get a sign. And that sign will be judgment. It might take the form of you just having a hard heart, just losing more and more interest, stepping further and further back. And one day you just discover that actually, well, I haven't thought about these things for ages, for years. That's judgment. God has hardened your heart. And so let's respond rightly to these words. You know, there's a third word that we need to be careful about. Maybe you're not credulous. Maybe you're not skeptical. Maybe you're just indifferent. Merriam-Webster says indifference is having no particular interest in or sympathy for something. That's, that's, in some ways, that's a, that's a worse position to be in than being a skeptic. Because it might be an evidence of the fact that already your heart is hardened. Let's examine ourselves this Christmas time. We're going to hear lots of myths. We're going to have lots of children's stories. Lots of fantasy. And that's lovely and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But that's not the true Christmas story. It doesn't fall into that category. We can be certain. Now will you bow with me as we pray. Father, thank you for preserving the book of Luke for us and for the carefully researched, investigated, orderly account that he has given us. I pray, Lord, that we would not just be mere eyewitnesses, but that we would be servants of the word, that we would believe it and that it would change us. And we thank you that this Christmas time we can have certainty that the things that we have been taught are true and based on history. But Lord, we don't want it to stay there. We want it to result in faith in you, belief in your word, submission to your son, trusting in him. And so we pray that that would be true of us afresh this time of the year. And perhaps that it would be true of someone for the first time this morning. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.